Praise his name indeed, O Father. That's why we are here, to proclaim the matchless name of Jesus. Not to the world this morning, we do that during the week, but to our own souls, we remind ourselves of how great and glorious Christ is. He is the center. He is true north to us. He's the ballast in our ship. He keeps us afloat and he keeps us upright. And most of all, he has given us eternal life in the knowledge of God. And so, yes, praise him. Oh, my soul, praise the Lord. And now, Father, I pray that you would make the Lord Jesus more glorious to us than he was before we came into this room today. I praise you for how you refreshed my own soul in the earlier service and in my study this week. And, oh, Father, I pray that you would use this dull instrument to proclaim some of the glory of your Son. And be glorified in it, Father, we pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. John chapter 4, our text once again, we were talking about the woman at the well. Actually, Jesus' encounter at the woman at, with the woman at the well. Let's begin by doing kind of a, a reboot on the story that we're studying as, as we see Jesus keep moving forward. This is what, three Three weeks into this story, there's just so much here, and there's so much to cover today, and, and I challenge you to go home and study it on your own, because I feel like when I get done these paragraphs, I step away and think, and yet the half has not been told. There is so much here. So Jesus has been ministering in Jerusalem And then in the countryside of Judea, and then probably because of the rising hostilities toward him in Judea, he decides to move his ministry to Galilee. And on the way to Galilee, he makes a stop in a small town by the name of Sychar, right in the middle of Samaria. And the reason he did that, well, he had a divine appointment with a woman whose name we will never know. In fact, no one knew No one but Jesus knew about this meeting. The disciples weren't aware of this meeting. It wasn't on their planner. In fact, the woman didn't even know. It wasn't on her planner either. But Jesus knew. And the Father had arranged this meeting. He'd arranged the meeting because he has big, big, big plans. And this narrative is a part of it. But his plans are not only for her, but for her entire village, and they don't know anything about the appointment either. And beyond that, God has big, big plans for the entire world, and the world knows nothing of it either. But they do to the extent that this story is told again and again and again around this world, even as it is being retold this morning here. And you know the story, the narrative begins at the end of a long journey, a long walk, that is, from Judea to Jacob's well, Jesus and his disciples, and they come to Sychar. It's in the heat of the day. Jesus and his men are hungry. They're tired. So the disciples kind of deposit Jesus right there at the well, and the disciples run off to pick up some Chick-fil-A for lunch, and they're gone for some time. And just as Jesus is catching his breath, sitting there at the well, this unnamed woman appears She's coming for not just a drink, she's coming for her water for the day. Imagine how much water. Do you know how much water you use? Average person, average American uses 70 gallons a day. Isn't that amazing? I wonder your water bill's high. And she approaches, she's coming to get life. She's coming to get water. She needs water to survive. And when she approaches the mouth of the well, Jesus is there. And she knows She doesn't know anything about him, but she knows he's a Jew. He's dressed like a Jew. The amazing thing is, Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans, but when this Samaritan approached, Jesus spoke to her. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up unto eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will, not, I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Then he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have answered correctly when you said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you're now living with is not your husband. You have answered this truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem, that's the place where men are to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will declare all these things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now one more note. Look at verse 28. What does the woman do? What does this woman do? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city. And said to the man, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have ever done. This is not the Christ, is he? What a story. This is amazing. It's amazing. It's absolutely a riveting story if you know something of the complexity of the spiritual, ethnic, and gender dynamics taking place. And we've covered all of that already, and so we're not going to rehearse that this morning, and we don't have time, but notice the progression here. When this woman first meets Jesus, he is nothing to her except a kind of an arrogant Jew sitting at the well of the Samaritan, and now he's asking for a drink. He's a thirsty guy from Israel. That's all she knows. And then after a few sentences of conversation, he becomes to her one who is offering her living water. And then when he suddenly and unexpectedly exposes her secret life of sin, she says to him, you must be a prophet. His rank is increasing with every turn of the conversation. And by the time the conversation ends, she is absolutely convinced He's not just a, a thirsty Jew. He's not just a prophet. He is the Messiah. And so, beloved, I asked you, how'd that happen? How'd that happen? I mean, just a few sentences here. It didn't, doesn't take long to read. A short conversation. A woman who had no expectation of finding anything at the well except water. She finds eternal life. And that in a very short period of time. How'd that happen? That's a good question. 
How did she experience change so quickly? The answer is simple. She was born again. She was born again. You remember what Jesus explained to Nicodemus. Turn back with me to chapter 3, or if your Bible's like mine, just look a little bit to the left. And you'll see Nicodemus, who wants to know how he can obtain eternal life. And understand, when we view all of this, and we see chapter 3 over there, and we see chapter 4 over here, and if we're not careful, we will see them as independent little monolithic stories that have nothing to do with each other. John is building his case. And we know where he's going, because he tells us all the way back in the end, in chapter 20, these things... Uh, I have included or I have written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have a life in his name. That's his goal, and so he's building. Story after story after story is building, very carefully selected. And so what happens with Nicodemus? In chapter 3, verse 3, um, here Nicodemus comes and he says, um, well, tacitly, he's asking about eternal life. How can I have eternal life? We know he was thinking that because of Jesus' answer. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom, to which Nicodemus replies, verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter the second time into his mother's womb, can he? Verse 5, Jesus answers. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Just to refresh on that, he's quoting... um, out of Ezekiel, just before he promises that someday God would give his people a new heart, he talks about them being born by water and the Spirit. He's talking about what the Spirit does, this cleansing, washing, purifying, transforming water. Unless a man is born by water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh, flesh. That which is born of spirit, spirit. Not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. And here's why. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You know that. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's he saying? You can't control this. You can't make people get saved. You can't save yourself. You can't save your children. You can't save any woman at any well. You can't even save this religious guy with all of his religious theological training. You can't even save him. Why? It's always the work of the Spirit. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. What's the point? The point is simply that. Regeneration. Regeneration, that act by which a dead soul, the dead soul of a sinner becomes alive to God forever is not something that man can do for himself or anyone else. It's something that is accomplished by the Holy Spirit by means of a miracle of grace. And this is why the writers of the New Testament frequently refer to salvation in creation language. He will make you a new creature, for example, um, in Christ, right? The God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who was shed abroad in your hearts and brought you the knowledge of the truth. It's creation language. You know, all this debate about, you know, was it evolution? Was it some kind of old earth thing? Or was it, you know, a literal seven days? And all, you know, it couldn't have been seven. It couldn't have been six literal days. Here's my question. Why not? Why not? And here's a better question. Why did it take him so long? I mean, six days. Why, why six days? Listen, folks, study the earth all you want. You'll never understand the miracle. Creation is a theological issue, not a scientific issue. And so it is with the raising of Lazarus. You follow that guy around all day long, for month after month, week after week, you'll never understand resurrection. It was a miracle. How is a person born again? Same way. It isn't the argumentation. It isn't the apologetics. It isn't all of the, the technique, the evangelism explosion. And I'm, and I'm not down on approaches to sharing the gospel. That's wonderful. Way the master, fine. But that doesn't save anyone. 
What it does is it brings the gospel to bear, which is what God requires. But the Holy Spirit must do the work. That's what happened to this woman at the well. And that's what happens to everyone who believes. Now, we've already considered the doctrine of regeneration back when we were studying John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. But in in the narrative of the woman at the well, we see Jesus' teaching about regeneration spring to life. And so come back with me to John chapter 4. Because these two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4, offer a tremendous contrast, uh, a study in contrast between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. James Montgomery Boyce is a great help to me on this. And um, he offers the, the following rather profound observation. Listen to this. He says, So far as any human being could judge, Nicodemus was of the two persons, the one who is the most interested in spiritual things, right? He came to Jesus, after all. The woman did not come. Christ sought the woman. Nicodemus asks for, he asked Christ the first question. The woman was approached by Jesus. Nicodemus actually asked how one could be saved, while the woman apparently tried to avoid the same point when it, when it involved Christ's questions about her personal life. She was dodging and weaving all over the place. To appearances, Nicodemus was the most sincere and spiritually oriented person, and yet there is not the slightest evidence that he actually believed. But the woman at the well showed her faith in every aspect of her speech and conduct. It's amazing. It's amazing. You see, beloved, salvation occurs, as John explained it back in chapter 1, when one is born again, listen, verse 13 of chapter 1, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God does his work. And so all of the glory goes to God. And all of the joy is ours and his. Salvation is a work of God. And beloved, we need to understand this because this is why Jesus came to earth. Let me, let me try to make a little bit of a distinction here. Jesus came not simply to offer salvation to people. It was an offer. I believe it was a true offer. He didn't come just simply to offer people something, hoping that somebody somewhere would find something in him that they like and they would like him. You know, I always think of, when I think of this, I think of Facebook. You see, Jesus, if somebody liked me, oh, look, somebody liked me, they might unlike me, but for now they like me. I'm just here hat in hand, hoping somebody would like me, hoping somebody would fall in love with me. That's not Jesus. You think that, you don't know anything about Jesus. He's king. He's king. And it's not why Jesus came. You see, Jesus was on a mission. What was his mission? Well, he explains that in the middle of this next section of Scripture. So all of that was introduction. If you're new, (laughs) sorry. We have a little ways to go. Look at verse 31. If you're taking notes, the Messiah reveals his mission. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Now what's going on here? Well, back in verse 27, at this point the disciples came and they were amazed that he was speaking with a woman, yet none none of them said, what is it that you seek or why do you speak to her? And now here they are in verse 31, urging him, Rabbi, eat something. They've come back from their little jaunt off to Chick-fil-A, and they've got their bags, and they're saying, Jesus, lunchtime, and he's no longer hungry. He's not thirsty, and he's not tired. Hmm. But he said to them, verse 32, I have food to eat that you don't know about. 
his typical response, look at verse 33. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought them any, anything to eat, did they? Nobody brought him something to eat, did they? I mean, you can, you can hear the disciples saying, okay, first you have an appointment that we don't know about, and then you have food that you don't know about. I mean, you could have saved us a trip to Chick-fil-A. You could have shared whatever it is you have. What is it that you have? When Jesus sat down at the well, he was fatigued. He was presumably hungry. But there was something about the conversation that he had with this woman that made all of his thought of food and tiredness whoosh, go away. And the pronouns here are emphatic. I am refreshed by nourishment that is hidden to you. I am refreshed. Jesus here. Jesus, I am refreshed by nourishment that is hidden to you. Well, that raises a question. What refreshes, it? What refreshes Jesus' soul? I mean, if, if he's the fountain of living water, what satisfies and energizes the Lord? What is it that Jesus treasures more than food or drink or popularity or wealth? What was the ruling desire of the satisfier and the satisfier of his soul? What is it? Verse 34. My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's my food. Notice Jesus doesn't say, my food is to bring the living water to parched souls. That's not the core that's not the main thing. That, that is the outflowing. That's the fruit of the main thing. What's the main thing? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, that is, to finish his work. Now, this would have been startling to Jews in his day to hear Jesus talk about doing God's work and finishing it. But as far as any Jew is concerned, as far as any Jew would have been concerned, God's work was done, and he said so. He said so. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, the scriptures clearly say, on the seventh day, God finished his work, and he rested. It was startling. I mean, Jesus, Jesus was bringing that up again and again with the Pharisees. They thought he was in a perpetual state of rest. And they get after Jesus for working on the Sabbath, and he says, my father's at work, and so am I. What do you mean he's working? I thought he was done. He's not only not done, his work continues, and he sent me here to finish it. That's why I've come. What was his task? What was his mission? What was his work? What did he come to complete? The answer is, it was the work of redemption. It is the work of salvation. It is the work of bringing reconciliation between sinful man and holy God. That's why he came. And it wasn't just a reconciliation for Jews. It was a reconciliation that would be effectual in the lives of men and women and children all over the world. Every kindred, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. He would complete that work on the cross. And in the end, very last word that Jesus says on the cross is what? Tetelestai. It is finished. Complete. Done. You remember the Great Commission? Each gospel kind of has a different version of it. I like the one in the book of Acts. Fits here perfectly. And I mean perfectly. Acts 1.8, you all know it. If you grew up in Sunday school, just before he ascends into heaven, Jesus says these words to his disciples. But you shall receive power after... The Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Guess where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth. That's my mission. My mission is to offer the appropriate sacrificial payment, the substitution on the part of sinners, my death for their life, and then to send that message out to the world, 
for you. Now consider this. That's Jesus' mission. Redemption, reconciliation, salvation. Yes, all of it. Atonement. He finished it on the cross. But this wasn't just a theoretical plan for the disciples to be thinking about after Jesus ascended back into heaven. This, was, this wasn't just a battle plan that he wanted them to do. No, no. He modeled it for them exactly. Now think about it. In John's record here, I mean, I think this is not by accident. The way John structures his book. Where does Jesus begin his ministry? He does the whole thing in exactly the same order. He begins in Jerusalem, cleansing the temple. And then beginning uh, after the cleansing of the temple, there's hostilities. And so uh, he moves out to the countryside of Judea, where he joins John the Baptist in a baptism ministry. Jerusalem, Judea. And then the third place we find him doing ministry, guess where that is? Samaria. And guess where we're going here in chapter 4? You know what the next story is? The next story is about the nobleman's son, healing the son of the nobleman. Now, who's the nobleman? Nobody knows. A lot of scholars believe he wasn't Jewish. And he wasn't a Samaritan, because usually when Samaritans are, are, are mentioned, they're, they're called Samaritans for a point. So where'd this guy come from? Somewhere else in the earth. He's not from Samaria. He's not from Judea. He's not from Jerusalem. This was Jesus' pattern. Follow me. This is how you do it. Jerusalem, Samaria, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then everywhere. He had a very clear mission. This was the mission of Messiah. He came not simply to offer salvation, but to actually rescue, redeem, regenerate, reconcile sinners to God. And to do it all over the world. You want to know why Jesus lost his appetite? I'll tell you why he lost his appetite. You know why he wasn't tired anymore? I'll tell you why he wasn't tired anymore. What could be going on in his heart that would be a stronger impulse than hunger or tiredness? Um, you know what the answer to that is? I was thinking about this this morning. And it occurred to me, Probably what happened here was Jesus was overcome by an internal impulse that was much more powerful. And that internal impulse is called joy. Absolute joy. He was overwhelmed with it. He was overcome by it. He was completely empowered by it. Who needs sleep? Who needs food? Are you kidding here we are in stage three of the mission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. I've been here for an hour. We're already seeing fruit. That's what excited him. It was amazing. This was the Messiah's mission, but there's more. Not only does the Messiah reveal his mission, but then, number two, the Messiah shares his reward now, here we get into the theological part, and it's, it's kind of neat. We won't get too deep here, but 35 through 38, watch this. Here he's talking to the disciples. He's still talking to the disciples. He just said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, which he would do on the cross. Verse 35, he's still speaking to the disciples, and he says, do, do you not say that there are four months and then comes the harvest? But I say to you, lift your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for the harvest. And Jesus quotes what's probably a common proverb in that day, that culture. Do you not say that there are four months and then comes harvest? This is, this is I think, best I can tell, a proverb that has something to do with patience. I mean, don't you say to one another, look, it's, just, it's four months. We can, we can hold out four months. It's four months to the harvest. It's kind of a proverb. Be patient. Don't you say that? We all know that. It takes time. It'd be like saying, uh, kind of akin to saying things like, Rome wasn't built in a day. It's going to take a while. In other words, farmers understand, as they have always understood, that there is, there is always a significant period of time between planting and harvest. 
There's always a, a significant period of time between planting and harvest. And if it's anything like my garden, it's all planting and no harvest. <laughs> or at least not very much edible or green. Nevertheless, the spiritual harvest that Jesus was bringing to Samaria, there will be no such delay. I say to you, verse 35, disciples, would you just lift up your eyes and look on the fields? They are already white for the harvest. White for harvest. Now, you city slickers, uh, and I shouldn't say you because it's me too. You know, you see this, and I remember when I was a kid. This is a misprint. White for harvest. What does white mean? That's a misprint. Ripe. They make ripe. Somebody tell the translators it's ripe for harvest. Not white. Well, that's not true. Um, in, the, in the mystery of God's providence, um, maybe just so I would understand this passage and a whole lot of other joys, but... Uh, one of the things he, he did in my life was have me marry a Kansas girl who grew up on a wheat farm. And she explained this to me early on. We're just white on the harvest. What does that mean? And so she explained to me one time we were there at, at harvest. And, uh, and she showed me this over the years as, as I've been there in the family. I remember being out in the fields with her dad, harvesting. And here's the explanation. Um, in the fall, what the farmer does is he goes out there with his tractor, and I don't know all the terminology. But in the fall, they drill wheat. I know that term. They drill wheat. What that means is they have this apparatus that follows them on the back of the tractor, and it puts wheat in the ground. And that's why when you see it from an air or from a high perch, you look down on the field, and if you see it after it first comes up, it's in these perfect lines, and they just kind of move with the land, and it's a beautiful thing to see. And so they, they drill the wheat. They plant the wheat. It doesn't take very long before it starts coming up in these little tufts of grass, deep, green, rich grass. And as fall turns into winter, they turn the cows loose on the grass. They eat the grass. doesn't kill the wheat. And they graze on the grass. Springtime comes around, and there's a stalk, kind of a shoot that comes out of the middle of that grass, and it starts growing. It's greener than anything. And it comes up, and as it grows, it starts to get paler and paler and paler, and that head is produced on the top. And then early, well, late spring, early summer, around May, at least in Kansas, that head is fully formed, and it kind of bows down as if to worship. And by then, it's almost white. And you look out over the fields, and these green fields have turned white. It's time for harvest. It's time for harvest. As soon as, soon as the grain is white, we harvest it. Now, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, lift up your eyes, brothers. And w would you just look at the fields? They're already white for the harvest. And so what do the disciples see? Well, what the disciples see when they lift their eyes away from their Chick-fil-A wrappers is a crowd of Samaritans in their traditional white robes. They knew who was Jew and who was Samaritan because of the way they dressed. Here they are in their traditional white robes coming out of the city, walking across down the road toward Jesus. Here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, the seed has just been planted moments ago, but it's already harvest time. It's already harvest time. Mark 4, 26 through 29. I love that text. Would you just turn there for a minute? You're in John. Just turn left a few Gospels until you find Mark chapter 4. It's a really long chapter. I'm only going to read a couple of verses. Mark chapter 4, verse 26 through verse 29. 
And here's Jesus teaching again, and he's teaching about this very thing. And here's what he's saying. I love this. Love this text. I love it when you see the word of God get pieced together and it all fits. And he was saying, verse 26 of Mark 4, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. It's a guy out planting wheat. So he casts the seed upon the soil, and then what's he do? Verse 27, and he goes to bed. I love that part. <laughs> I'm going to do that as soon as I'm done here. He casts the seed on the soil, and then he goes to bed at night, and he gets up in the day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? That's the question, right? How? Well, he himself does not know. He doesn't know how. Nobody knows how. You plant the seed, you go to bed, wake up, you do that a few times, and after a while, there it is. How does that happen? I haven't a clue, but it happens every year. I put the seed in the ground, I come outside, and there it is. And I sleep well. I don't worry about it. I don't worry about it. I don't have to go out there and make the seed grow. I just put it in the ground. I go to sleep. Verse 28, the soil produces crops by itself. Isn't that great? The crop, the soil produces the crop by itself, all by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts the sickle, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about being a faithful purveyor of the gospel of salvation. What do you do? You plant the seed and you go to bed. Listen, beloved, be encouraged by this. Listen, faith comes by hearing and the hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Do not hear me say that somehow God is sovereignly going to save people without the proclamation of the gospel. That's not biblical. God is sovereign over election. He's sovereign over salvation. It's true. And praise God, it's true. That's our hope. That's how we came to know Christ, if indeed we have. But here's the beautiful thing. You get to get the message right. You share the gospel, get the message right. If you share the gospel and it's rejected or you share it and it's accepted, rejoice. Why? That's all you can do. You can't save anybody. And nobody, not even Billy Graham, ever could. Not even the Apostle Peter, not any pope. No one can save anybody. And what's our job? You plant the seed. Plant the seed. Sometimes planting the seed is going to be really easy. Sometimes it's, it's going to be really threatening and agonizing. But you know what? Plant the seed. Well, then what do I do? Go to bed. Pray. Plead. But really, your work is done. And then comes the harvest. How? God just does it. What do you mean, how? He just does it. And when he does, joy. Amazing. Harvest time has come. My wife's family has, has told me on occasion that in the farming community, the, uh, the most joyful time of the year is harvest time. And they've been waiting all year. Waiting all year. Now here it is. And everybody's out. Everybody's out. Everybody's working. From sun up, as soon as the crop dries out and they can... They can get it into a truck until, until the sun is down and they're out there harvesting wheat with their headlights on until the dew gets too heavy. Coming all day, every day. It's the most joyful time of the year. And so it was for Jesus. But the joy was not for him alone. The joy of the harvest, even though it was what motivated him and energized him and nourished him at this point, he knew he had done the Father's will and he was doing it and would finish it on the cross. But here he was, his plan, his mission, Jerusalem, Judea, got that, did that, did Jerusalem, 
Things were moving there. Did Judea, things are going on there. Here I am in Samaria. I've only been here an hour. And already it's bearing fruit. And the reward of the harvest he shares with his disciples. Look at verse 36. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice. Now listen to these words. They may rejoice together. Now you're going to run right by that if you don't think about it. You're going to run right by it if you don't think about it. Let's just think about it for a minute. Wages. Jesus here is speaking of the reward that the reapers will receive for their labor. Um, in the spring, there are these custom cutters that start in, in, in uh, the central part of the United States. They start in Texas, down south Texas, because that's where the harvest begins because of the temperatures. And they start cutting wheat. And these guys, they, they just live. They're like vagabonds. They're like, you know, carnival travelers, except they're... they're um, uh, they're, they're moving north, and all they're doing is cutting farmer's wheat. And here's, what, here's, here's the way it works. They contract with the farmer. They say, hey, you don't have to cut your wheat. Let us do it. You pay us to do it. You get, you get a share of the profit. We get, we get paid. And so Jesus is saying, um, the reward of the reapers has already come. For Jesus, he was a reaper. Jesus' reward would be the, would his own exaltation and the children, the redeemed, the bride that the Father would give him on the last day for carrying out the will of God faithfully. As the author of Hebrews said it, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured. He knew what was coming. It would be his reward. And for the disciples, it would be the reward that they and we will receive at the judgment seat of Christ for our faithful service. Some of the reward comes immediately in the joy of seeing people come to Christ in the form of the satisfaction and perhaps other blessings that would come. People come to Christ and they become your best friends. I mean, they look at you as, as, as unattractive as, I know what this is like, leading people to Christ and some of you... Um, have been the fruit of, of my ministry here, and I praise God for that. And so often what I've seen, doesn't matter how unattractive I may be, they will say, if you lead them to Christ, maybe for the rest of their life, they'll look at you, no matter how unattractive, and they'll say, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel, the good news. Talk about loyalty, talk about friendship, talk about blessing, talk about joy. There's reward here. Jesus gets reward, we get reward, and all of it for the harvest that we could not produce, but which God freely brought about by the power of his own grace. And in this case, there was immediate reward for both Jesus and his fellow reapers. Why? Because already, already, they were gathering fruit for eternal life. God was already saving people. He was already reconciling them to himself through Christ. He wasn't waiting for the cross. The benefits of the cross would be applied to them retroactively. He was already causing some to be born again. And beloved, this is absolutely amazing. Here's what he's saying. It's as if the planters and the reapers are in the field together doing their respective work at the same time. Think about that. And that's not natural. It's not natural. You ever work on a farm? Okay, so you got your sowers and you got your reapers. The sowers go first, and then uh, months later, the reapers get to work. They have separate responsibilities, maybe using separate equipment. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Not in the kingdom of God, at least not anymore. Here's the way we do it. Sowers, reapers, get together. Everybody get out in the field and get to work. Why? Because as fast as you can plant them, they're going to be ready for harvest. You're working in the field at the same time. And so you reapers just follow the sowers because they're going to be planting and the stuff's going to be growing and it's going to be ready to harvest before you can get to it. Isn't that amazing? Shannon Hurley says, come to Uganda, anything you put in the ground, it'll grow. You bang up your car, just stick it in the ground. You'll get a new one. <laughs> Having trouble with your kid? No, maybe not. 
This is a miracle. This is a miracle. How fast can you put the seed in the ground? I mean, harvester, I mean, uh, 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 sowers, get out of the way. Plant the seed, get out of the way. Why? Because the reapers are on your heels. That's what Jesus is saying. I mean, this is the only place in the Bible where it's been said. Amos prophesied that this is the way it would be. Amos, Old Testament, here's what he says. God said through Amos, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman, that's the sower, the guy running the plower, he's, he's, he's cutting the soil to drop seed in it. The plowman, where am I? I lost it. There it is. The plowman, the sower, shall overtake the reaper and the treaders of grapes, him who sows the seed. And then the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I mean, wait, how did the reapers get ahead of the sowers? It's all happening at the same time. Fruit, much fruit. Fruit here is a reference to people. They're people he's viewing as harvested grain who will obtain eternal life. And the person who sows is anyone who proclaims the gospel, but ultimately is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. This was his work, and it still is. This is why he came to earth, namely to finish the work that the Father had given him to do. And here it was being done right before their eyes. And he hadn't even gotten to the cross yet. The sower, the reaper, I mean, it's all confusing now. And God is pouring out such grace that it's just all happening at the same time. There's plenty of work to do. I mean, you take one step, and and here you are. You're planting a seed. Take another step, oh, and you're harvesting. You bump into one person, oh, I got to plant a seed. Bump into the next person, oh, I got to harvest. Maybe back to the first person again. It's harvest time already. And sometimes it takes a long period of time. And maybe it's not you. Maybe somebody else will harvest it. Maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe 10 years from now. But it's all happening together. Why? Because of the mystery of salvation. The glory of Christ the Redeemer. Here's what the Apostle Paul said, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God causes the growth. God causes the growth. Rest in that, rejoice in that, and get to work. So here we have the joy of Jesus. Here we have the joy of the disciples. They don't know it yet. They're still trying to figure out what in the world's going on and why did he talk to this woman and who are these people coming? And what about lunch? (laughs) And here's this woman. She didn't didn't come seeking. By the way, this passage relative to the whole seeker service movement, this woman didn't come seeking. You know who was seeking? The Father. It's the Father who was seeking. That's a different sermon. So here's Jesus rejoicing. The disciples are going to be rejoicing. Guess who else is rejoicing? Woman. Now that astounds me. She hasn't even been a fruit for 30 seconds. And she's already rejoicing and participating in the harvest. First thing she does, she springs to life and starts planting seeds. Amazing. Amazing. Some of you know what that was like. Many of you came to Christ. You think, I I can't explain this. I've heard the gospel 10,000 times, never understood it. Now I do, and now i got to tell somebody. Would you just listen to me? And reject me if you will. I can't believe you will, but let me just tell you what I just discovered. This couldn't be the Christ, could it? Everybody's rejoicing. Everybody's rejoicing. The people who are coming out of Samaria, they don't know what to think yet. They're just coming to investigate, but soon they'll be rejoicing. Look at verses 37 and 38. Jesus is still speaking to his disciples. For in the case, for in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you have not, for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. You know what he's saying here, I think? Don't get cocky. This isn't about you. It's not about your ministry, your particular presentation of the gospel. That doesn't have anything to do with it. Get the message right. Plant the seed. And you know what? You're going to be harvesting. You're going to be harvesting not just from 
from people that you've spoken with personally, but you're going to be harvesting after the work of other people. And guess what? You're about ready to harvest. You, you already proud, cocky disciples. Guess whose fruit you are going to be harvesting? That Samaritan woman and me. But rejoice. Because Messiah has not only come to fulfill his mission, he's come to share with you his reward. Get busy. The Samaritans came not because of anything the disciples had done, not, not because of anything that they had said when they were buying their chicken nuggets, but simply because the master had a conversation with this woman, and the woman was about to have a conversation with her village. And so you see, God has so arranged things that in some will sow, others will reap, Sometimes the reapers will get to sow. Sometimes the sowers will get to reap. And wherever you get a chance, you sow and you rejoice. And whenever you get a chance to reap, you rejoice because you're experiencing the privilege of participating in the work that God is doing through Christ by means of the gospel. He's reaping a harvest of souls. And we all get to be a part and experience the joy of a fruitful harvest because Messiah shares his reward. And so we've seen the Messiah reveal his mission. We've seen him share his reward. Watch this. Now let's get back to the story in verses 27 through 30. Let me just read this. Jesus has just said, I'm the Messiah. At this point, verse 27, the disciples came and they were amazed because he was speaking to a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak to her? Just a little parenthetical here. Wherever the gospel goes and takes root in the community, women start being honored. Wherever the gospel finds root in that community, women start being honored. That's the way it was everywhere Jesus went. Didn't matter if it was a Jewish woman, Samaritan woman, Syrophoenician woman. That's a different sermon as well. Verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. This couldn't be the Christ, could it? Now let's think about this for a minute. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but think about this first. She left her pitcher. John is notorious for giving us these little details. Little clues about what he's thinking here. She left her pitcher, probably this large earthenware pitcher that she would carry on her hip or, 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 um, or on her shoulder. And that's not the important thing. The important thing here is to note that as soon as this woman realized and believed that Jesus was the Messiah, she forgot, completely forgot, her original purpose for coming to the well. I've got to have water. I have to live. She meets Jesus. Forget about the water. I found the Messiah. I found living water. I found the bread of heaven. I found eternal life. It was just like the man that Jesus talked about in Matthew 13 who found hidden treasure in a field that he was walking across and from joy over it, he goes and he sells how much? Everything he had. Why? To buy the field. I gotta have the field. I gotta have the field. I gotta have the field. Just take everything. I gotta have the field. And so here's the Samaritan woman going, I don't need water. I got to do something. I got to do something. I got to go tell somebody about what I just heard, what I just learned, what I now believe. And so she goes running. In that moment, the only thing she wanted to do was tell the world that she had found the Messiah. You see the parallel here with Jesus? He sat down. He was hungry. He was thirsty. She came to the water. She came to the well because she needed water. She was thirsty too. All of a sudden, she gets up and runs away. She forgets about her water pot. And all of a sudden, Jesus stands up, greets his disciples, and it's obvious he doesn't need any food anymore, and he's not tired. Why? Because all of their focus is on what God is doing. What happened to this woman? She got a taste of the living water. She didn't get the water she came for. 
What other explanation can there be? How else do we explain how this immoral Samaritan outcast could come to faith in Christ so quickly and she wasn't even seeking it? Answer, the wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind blew. The water satisfied. The Spirit of God took the Word of God and created a child of God. You get that? The Spirit of God took the Word of God and created a child of God. Just as surely as he created the heavens and the earth. How does that happen? It happened how it always happens. Miracle. Miracle. And what's the result? And by the way, beloved, I'm all about sharing the gospel with your children. Do it. It is the only means of salvation. But don't fret. Don't fret. Be faithful with the gospel. And yes, pray, plead that God would do his work, but he is not a reluctant savior. He loves your children 10,000 times more than you do. You just be faithful. You plant the seed. You let the Holy Spirit give it life. And what was the result? She had to go tell someone. She couldn't keep it to herself. She left her water pot. She ran. Think about this. This woman who would not call for her husband is now calling the entire city to come and see Jesus. And know how they came. Verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word that the woman who testified, he told me all things that I have done. And so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him and And he did. He stayed there for two days. Many more, watch that, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, now the crowd is talking to the woman, and they say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed, what? the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the world. Do you believe that? What does it mean, Savior of the world? Here's what it means. The world's only Savior. That's what it means. Do you believe that? you believe he's your only hope? Do you believe he can be the only one who can be the satisfier of your soul to give you living water? He alone can send the wind of heaven to blow through your heart and cause you to be born again. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? And the woman invited her neighbors. (laughs) She just said, Come. The same thing that, that I think Andrew said, wasn't it to John? We think we've come and found the Messiah or in Galilee. Uh, no, it was Nathaniel, right? Can anything good come out of Galilee? Out of Nazareth? It was Nazareth. Anything good come out of Nazareth? What did Nathaniel say? Or what did uh, Andrew say? Come and see. Just come. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. And you know what? That invitation has gone out ever since Jesus and long before God has always been inviting sinners to come. God said to Abraham, come, (laughs) leave everything, just leave everything, come. Follow me to a land that I will show you. Trust me. David said, come and see the works of the Lord. Elsewhere he will say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Just, Just come. Through Isaiah, God said to Israel, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool white. Come, 
And Jesus said to the people, come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden with that horrendous religious load, and I will give you rest. Come. One day the angels of God will sing their invitation to the redeemed. Come and assemble for the great marriage supper of the Lamb. At the judgment, the king himself, Jesus, will say, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come. And through the prophet Isaiah, once again, God said, Oh, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Come. In the very last chapter of God's book, Revelation 22, one of the very last things we hear is this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, come. Do you hear it? God inviting you, oh, beloved, my friend, if If in the end, at the judgment, you find yourself standing outside of the kingdom of God, it's not because you weren't invited. It's because you loved your stuff and yourself more than God. It's the only reason. It's the only reason. The offer is genuine. Christ invites you to come. And the only reason anyone won't come is because of a sinful heart that hates God. So what's the message of this story? I was wrestling with this morning. I'm thinking, man, last night even, yesterday, Lord, how do you bring all of this together? I mean, how do you land the plane on this thing? There are so many details, so many so many facets of the glory of Christ here. How do, you, how do you wrap all this up? I printed my sermon before I had an answer for that. And I was walking back into my office and I thought, I have an answer. So I got back on the computer and reprinted it. What's the message of the story? The message is this. Behold your Messiah. Behold your Messiah. He is the giver of living water. He is the lover of sinners. He is the prophet who knows every detail of your wretched life, and he loves you. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. That's glory. That's glorious. Beloved, how do you respond? You behold him. You worship him. You entrust your life to him. You find your satisfaction and your identity and your meaning and purpose in him. You see in him true north. He is everything to you. He is the rock under your feet. He is the compass to guide you. He is the very life in your soul if you will receive him and trust him. And in the midst of all of that, know the joy of laboring by his side. That's why I'm in ministry. It's what gets me up in the morning. It's what makes me read my Bible off my iPhone at dinner to my kids. It's why we sing together. It's why we pray. It's why we come here to worship you. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the Messiah. It's all about the Savior of the world. What satisfies Jesus is giving eternal life. He had a mission. He came to finish the work that God had started. He would do it on the cross. 
And now he offers us the joy of laboring with him in the harvest of souls, simply going and telling people, we have found the Messiah, and he is the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I'm not sure that I have ever sensed so deeply as I have in these past few messages how enabled and inept I am at communicating your glory. Words creak and groan under the weight of the magnificence of the Son of God. But, oh, Father, I pray that you would use this attempt, this this halting, humble attempt at setting your glory on display to call some to yourself unto salvation, to encourage others. May it be exhortation and rebuke. May it be joy and overcoming power and motivation to do what you've called us to do for your glory and for our joy. All of it, Father, simply because we love you. And we want to be faithful. We want to finish the work that you, O Father, have given us to do as we follow the Son. May it be said of us as well, Lord, that our food was to do the will of him who sent us. Be glorified in us, Father, as we try. In Jesus' name.